Come with me one final time to Romans 13. I promise we're going to get done this week. Barring something extreme happening in the worship service this morning, we're going to finish Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. Let me just read it, remind us of what our Savior says through the pen of the Apostle Paul about the process of sanctification. Do this, verse 11, knowing the time. That it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you for the morning and thank you for worship and thank you for song that has led us into Worship of you, delight in you, expressing through music the satisfaction that we have with you because of the redemptive work of Christ. Thank you, Father, that we have someone to worship and we are able to worship because we have been turned from idolaters into God worshipers by the work of Christ. And he has set our hearts right And by the power of the Spirit who is within us, our hearts are being progressively made right even while on this earth, anticipating the day when we will be fully just, fully right before you, for we will see you just as you are. What a glorious day that will be. And as we have just read in this passage, it's coming soon. Oh, may it come quickly, Lord, for we are ready. And while we wait, we ask that we would be made more ready still. That our hearts would continue to be increasingly inclined toward you. And that the desires of our heart And the activities of our lives would increasingly look like Christ who has redeemed us. And Father, would you even use this passage this morning to move us in that direction? We pray in Christ's name for his exaltation, for your glory, for our good. We pray in his name. Amen. In 1899, just months after being sworn in as the governor of New York, Theodore Roosevelt gave a speech in Chicago, which remained one of his most well-known and well-loved oratorical masterpieces. In it, he calls the technology-growing, wealth-amassing Americans to be wary of the life of ease. He said this, 
In speaking to you, men of the greatest city of the West, men of the state which gave the country Lincoln and Grant, men who preeminently and distinctly embody all that is most American in the American character, I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of strenuous life. The life of toil and effort, of labor and strife. To preach that highest form of success which comes not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or bitter toil, and who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. The 20th century looms before us big with the fate of many nations. If we stand idly by, if we seek merely swollen, slothful ease and ignoble peace, if we shrink from the hard contests where men must win at hazard of their lives and at risk of all they hold dear, then the bolder and stronger peoples will pass us by and will win for themselves the domination of the world. Let us therefore boldly face the life of strife, resolute to do our duty well and manfully, resolute to uphold righteousness by deed and by word, resolute to be both honest and brave, to serve high ideals, yet to use practical methods. Above all, let us shrink from no strife, moral or physical, within or without the nation, provided that we are certain that the strife is justified. For it is only through strife, through hard and dangerous endeavor, that we shall ultimately win the true goal of national greatness. I vote for him for president. What about you? Boy, does our country need to hear those words again? Brothers and sisters, don't we as a church, don't we as individuals in Christ Jesus need to hear those words? For his words to a nation are applicable to us as followers of Jesus Christ as well. As followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot expect anticipate, desire, or long for a life of ease and simplicity. In fact, we should anticipate a life of labor. A life of labor, not just in serving one another, but a life of labor in pursuing Christ-likeness and fighting sin. Our sanctification is an astounding gift of God's grace. But it is mediated, that sanctification, through His Word and through our labors in pursuing Him. It's interesting how frequently the Scriptures speak to the hardness of this labor. I, I made eight or ten different references yesterday as I was thinking about this in my notes. Let me just draw your attention to just a couple of passages that refer to the hardness of our labor. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know 
that those who run in a race all win, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Do you hear the effort, the work? The labor, the striving, 1558, the same book. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, knowing that the vacation you have in Jesus Christ is not in vain. It's toil. It's strenuous, it's hard, it's laborious. Colossians chapter 1, For this purpose also I labor, striving, according to His power which mightily works in me. I labor, I strive, I push. Hebrews chapter 11. You know... The list of people. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong and became mighty in war, putting armies to flight. Verse 36, they experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. The life for Jesus Christ, the life pursuing sanctification is no life of ease. Consider him, Hebrews says, chapter 12, verse 3, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If our Savior faced such hostility, then we can anticipate the same. Notice verse 4. For you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of blood in your striving against sin. It will take blood to pursue sanctification and be victorious. It is hard work. But the hard work of sanctification should not be a deterrent to our pursuit of that sanctification. The reality of the hard work should in fact invigorate our purpose and our plan to pursue obedience. We've been in this passage for a time, but let me just remind you Paul's point. It is time, brothers and sisters, to intentionally act on the salvation we have been given. We have been given a grand and glorious salvation. Its design for us has been to sanctify us, to purify us, to help us to walk with Christ, to emulate Christ. And it is time 
to take seriously the call to sanctification. And by God's grace, I am thankful that so many of you do that. You push, you labor, you strain, you push back against sin, you push towards Christ. That's your longing. And brothers and sisters, it must may, may be, it must continue to be our longing. Here the apostle will remind us, instruct us to three actions and then one massive motivation to act in that way. It's time to intentionally act on the salvation we have been given. Very quickly, let me just remind us of where we've been. The first thing that he calls us to do, verse 11, he says it is time to do something. If you flick back for just a moment to chapter 12, You're familiar with verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So there he calls us to push against sin, to push towards righteousness, to have our minds renewed. That's the process of sanctification. And everything that follows those two verses in chapters 12 and 13 is is an amplification, a demonstration of what the sanctified life looks like in a variety of contexts. And all these things, Paul says in 1311, we are to do. Do this. He says in 1311, he's compelling us. To this life of sanctification to which he has called us in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. He's called us to take seriously the process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ to looking like him. That's all sanctification is. Being being set apart to look like Christ. To live like Christ. To emulate him. When he talks about sanctification, that's what he's talking about. Why would he do that? He gives us the reason at the end of verse 11 and through verse 12. Because there is a goal to which we have been set aside and there is an accountability in that goal. It is the hour for you to awaken from sleep for salvation is nearer to us than when we believe the the complete fulfillment of our salvation, the the redemption of salvation by which we go into heaven and we come into the presence of Christ, it's near, brothers and sisters. It's close. It's coming soon. And because it is coming soon, and verse 12, the night is almost gone, and the day of the Lord is near. It's time. To pursue Him with all righteousness. We should be cognizant of the imminency of His return. And that recognition should compel us and be a stimulant to faithfulness. Over the years I've had multiple pleas. Pastor, next time, next time you change to a new series, would you, would you preach on Revelation? And the reason people want me to preach on Revelation is they want to know what day it is that he's going to be coming. Well, this is a short series. I don't know. Next series. That's always the goal. When's it going to be? When's it happening? I don't know. Even Christ in his humanity did not know the hour 
in which he would return. What's the goal then of thinking about the day? Second Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, verse 10, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What's the goal of thinking about end times? The goal is to transform our lives so that we look like Jesus Christ. So we might sum up these verses, verses 11 and 12. And Christ is coming soon. It is urgent to be sanctified and to live out the reality of what he has done for us. When Christ comes, he will gloriously, perfectly and eternally set right everything that's wrong. And until that time, let's prepare for his coming to do that by living sanctified. Number three, because he is coming He says it is time to put off sinful deeds. He states the principle of what we are to put off in verse 12, the end of verse 12. He says, therefore, because Christ is coming, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Lay aside has the idea of let us us stop sin. Because we are believers in, in Jesus Christ, sin is now contrary to what we are. It is inconceivable that we would continue to cultivate cultivate desires and engage in sins that are opposed to what Jesus Christ died to redeem us to be and to do. So remember chapter 6? Chapter 6, are we to continue in sin so the grace may increase? Verse 1, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We have been created as new creatures in Jesus Christ. We have a new identity. We have a new freedom from sin. Why would we continue to stay in that sin? So he says in verse 11, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lay it aside. Because that's not who you are anymore. What are we to lay aside? Notice he says in verse 12, the deeds of darkness. The deeds of darkness tell us both where sin comes from. It comes from darkness and where it will lead. It leads to eternal darkness. And put off those things that come from the evil one and come from rebellion and come from a lack of desire for God that come from the pit of hell and will take you to the pit of hell. The believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to notice from this, is now able to put off, to stop, to end this mad pursuit of sin. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to sin. Will we still? Yes. But it should be more the exception than the rule. For now we are the ones who can say, this is not who I am. I have the Spirit of God and the Christ of God residing within me, empowering me so that I don't have to do this. 
because of Jesus Christ and what we are in Him, there is now no longer an I can't in the spiritual life. We are able. That's the principle. Stop the sin. Then he applies that principle to particular sins in verse 13. In verse 13, he addresses sins that are particularly nighttime sins. Remember in verse 12, he says, put off the deeds of darkness. In verse 13, the first four of those are sins that typically happen at night. It's his overt way of saying, don't do the things that you do at nighttime that that come from the darkness, from sin. Again, this is not an exhaustive list of sins. He'll give other lists in other places. But his point in this verse is simply to to remind us to pay attention to the kinds of things that will entice us and lead us astray from Christ. Be watchful of every temptation. What are the things that entice you? Where are you tempted? Where do you struggle? Be watchful and be aware that if you are in Christ, you're not enslaved to that. You're free from it. And he's also reminding us not only to pay attention to the various sins that entice us, but he also exhorts us to put on eternal living even while we live in temporal bodies. So notice what he says at the beginning of that verse, let us behave properly as in the day. Let us live today as if Christ has returned, as if we are already in his presence. And what we will do then, let us do that today. Don't do anything now that you won't do in eternity in God's presence. Because... We're already in his presence, aren't we? Then he will again summarize that principle. The end of verse 14. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. That little phrase, make no provision for the flesh, implies that we are prone to making allowances for sin. We don't take our responsibility to fight against sin seriously. We get lazy. We make excuses. We don't have a plan to fight against sin. So we give in to temptation and we knowingly engage in rebellious sin. You and I need a plan. And the plan needs to be something more than just when we get up in the morning saying, I don't want to sin today. Well, that, that's good. But can we be just, just a little bit more specific than that? How about saying something like this? I am particularly inclined to. And then fill in the blank with your pet sin. I'm particularly inclined to lust, materialism, spending, pleasing man, seeking praise, gluttony, anxiousness, anger, defensiveness, vindictiveness. I am particularly inclined to. And today I will fight against that by. And then fill in the blank of what you will do. To fight against that temptation. We don't want to make allowances. For the sin. 
or the motive that drives the sin. Make no provision for the flesh. Instead, one last calling he has for us. It's time to put on Christ's armor. At least one of us in this room struggles with gluttony. That's me. And so when I get up in the morning, it, it helps and it doesn't help to say something like this. Terry, today, don't think about the cases of Bluebell sitting at Kroger. And don't think about the hot fudge that's there. And um, don't think about your favorite granola that you can eat in vast quantities really quickly. Don't think about a steak that you would really like to have or a hamburger at Grump's with the fried jalapenos. I mean, seriously. Have you all had the fried jalapenos? I can get evangelistic for just a moment. Preach it. Somebody's had them. And I start thinking about all the food that I might eat that day. And that doesn't help me. Because what am I thinking about? Food. Let me just, let me just be transparent with you for a moment. There are some sins that are easy for us to avoid. There's a sense in which something like pornography can be avoided relatively easily. You can put on software on your computer. Even better, you can dump your computer. You can, you can go back to just one of those simple phones that actually does what a phone is supposed to do. It makes phone calls and nothing else. And you can get rid of an iPad and have no access. But for those of us who struggle with gluttony, three times a day we are confronted with our temptation to that sin. If you are struggling with slothfulness and ease and laziness, every day God puts you in bed purposefully to demonstrate you're not God, you've got to go to sleep. And when you awaken in the morning, you're tempted by ease and slothfulness. Every single day, you can't avoid it. And if you are prone to self-control and sovereignty, every day you have to drive on 377. And it demonstrates you are not in control. You're not sovereign. And if you're prone to, to covetousness, every day you put this in your back pocket. And you might have to go to a store and make a purchase. Or you update your Quicken account and you're prone to saying, how can I save ten more dollars? How can I be stingy and not gracious? How can I covet? Some sins are just really hard to deal with because we're confronted with them all day long. And when your wallet is in your back pocket, how do you say, I'm just not going to think about Money and giving and sacrifice and not coveting. It's not enough to just say, 
I won't covet. We need to put on Christ's armor. We need to put on something contrary to what our sin is. So Paul states the principle this way at the end of verse 12. In contrast to putting off, to laying aside, same word, laying aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Now you're familiar with the idea of putting off sin, putting on righteousness, right? It's I put off the sin. I I take off the dirty garments of sin. But taking off those dirty garments is not enough to get me into a black tie dinner. I need to put on something else. I need a shower. I need a shave. And I need to put on the appropriate clothing for that black tie dinner. And that's what the apostle is speaking about here spiritually. We don't just need to stop sinning, but we need to start doing the righteous God-intended corresponding act to that sin. We need a righteous replacement for our sins. We need to put on the righteous desire and the righteous activity that leads us to Christ and that corresponds to the corrupting sin that leads us away from Christ. And so Paul says, put on the armor of light. Instead of doing things that correspond to living in the evil darkness, we put on the actions and attitudes that correspond to the righteous light of Christ and His kingdom. In fact, it's very similar to what he says in verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day. Let's put on light living. Let's put on kingdom living. Let's put on living that we will see when we are in the light of Christ only. When he says put on, he's talking about being purposeful, intentional. Just like we're intentional when we put off sin. And it's a subtle reminder again, brothers and sisters, that this is something we can do. We we can please the Lord. We, 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 when we did not believe in Christ, could not obey Him. We could not please God. But now that we are in Christ, we can please Him. And that is the very thing that we are to do. Just as a pragmatic level, one question that I ask myself all the time is, Terry, did Christ die to free you from this activity? Or did Christ die to liberate you to do this activity? That's the difference between putting off and putting on, right? If He died to liberate me from it, I should put it off. If He died to to free me to do it, then I should put it on. Notice here that He uses the word armor. Put on the armor of light. You're familiar with Ephesians chapter 6 where He uses... Armor imagery. That imagery actually comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59. It says in verse 17, speaking about God. He, God, put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal. As a mantle. So that 
armor warrior image we see. It comes from a picture of who God is and what he is like. And so when he says put on the, the armor of light, in a sense he is saying emulate the God who wears that kind of armor in his nature and in his being. It might be tempting for us to think about all the different kinds of armor that we're to put on, but I don't think that's Paul's point here. I think his point is simply to remind us that this is warfare, brothers and sisters. It's a battle. It's a fight. It's hard work to pursue Christ, to pursue godliness. It's not something that will come with ease. It's not something that will come without diligence and pursuit. Paul will say something similar in his final letter. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Again, that warrior image. We're soldiers of Christ. We're embattled for Him. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. He's diligent. He's fighting. He's aware. He's on guard. He's engaged. He takes a similar image in verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. He disciplines himself. He follows the rules. He works with stringency, intensity, purposefulness. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of crops. The farmer doesn't, doesn't get up in the morning and say, well, it's a pretty day today. I think I'll go to the beach. He says, it's a pretty day today. I think I'll go and sow some seed. He's working, he's laboring, he's intensive, he's purposeful. And brothers and sisters, too often we lose the fight against sin because we are unwilling to go into training to do the hard things to fight. We want to be Olympic athletes while watching a movie and eating a bowl of popcorn. Doesn't happen that way. The life of obedience is a fight to which we have been called. And the quest to be godly is a fight. And it always will be. Put on the armor of light. Said one commentator, Christians cannot afford to remain in the unprotected condition of scantily clothed sleepers at a time when the situation calls for armor. Get in the fight. Grab your armor. That's the principle. Now he's going to apply it to one particular desire. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the threefold title and name of our Savior. He is the Lord. So put on His mastery of you. If He is the Lord, to put Him on is to say, I submit to you, I follow you, 
You are sovereign over me. You are guiding me. You are directing me. I follow. You lead. Put on Jesus. His attributes as the sinless incarnate Christ. Who fought sin by the power of the spirit. It's tempting to say about Jesus Christ. Well. Of course he didn't sin because he was God. He couldn't sin. That, that's true. He could not. But how did he fight against sin? Luke chapter 4. As he heads into the wilderness. Luke records this. Chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. How did Christ resist the evil one? By submitting to the power of the Spirit and using the power of the Spirit to combat sin. Brothers and sisters, that's so hopeful for us. Because we combat sin the very same way. Jesus didn't resist sin in any different way than we do. He did it by submitting to the Spirit. And in fact, notice verse 14, Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee after the temptation in the power of the Spirit. So he heads into the temptation... Submitting to the Spirit, combating sin and temptation by the Spirit. And then he goes about the regular course of his life, going back to Galilee to resume his ministry, being led by the Spirit. And we combat sin in the same way. Brothers and sisters, put on Jesus and the power that comes through him and through his Spirit. And then put on Christ, his attributes as the exalted God and Messiah. The one who has wed us as his bride. That's what we put on. We put on the Lord. We put on Jesus. We put on the Christ, the Messiah. The full deity of God. What does it mean to put on Jesus? Temptation might be at this point to come up with some mystical process about putting on Christ, I think it has at least two particular components to it. First, it means to appropriate His righteousness as our own. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ means I stop appealing to my righteousness as a means for my right standing before God and I appeal to and use only Christ's righteousness to gain right standing before God. His righteousness is my righteousness. My righteousness, filthy rags. This is what we saw in chapters 5 and 6, particularly 5.18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, in other words, all men are under sin because of Adam's sin, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men 
For as through the one man's obedience, disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteousness, righteous. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to say, he's my identity, he's my righteousness. So Charles Wesley said in his familiar hymn, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. So to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is simply to say his righteousness is my only righteousness. I have nothing else. And secondly, it infers that we practice those actions and cultivate those desires which emulate Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus, your Lord and your master. We imitate the one with whom we are identified. So to put on Jesus means we've been identified with Jesus and then we live the way that he lived. Remember, I just read chapter six, verses one and two. Don't you know, verse three, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. We're identified with him. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that, end of the verse, verse 4, we might walk in newness of life. We've been identified with Him so that we live like Him. We see a good illustration of this in Philippians chapter 3. Even as the Apostle spoke about his own life. We read this earlier. Desiring to know Him, verse 10. To attain resurrection from the dead, verse 11, then verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on. So that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus saved me for something. And that's what I'm pursuing. Well, he saved him and saved us for eternity in heaven, but he also saved us to be sanctified now. And that's to what he is pursuing. Verse 12. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing on towards the goal of what he will receive in heaven. He wants to live now like he will live in heaven. And then in verse 16, he summarizes, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. That is, we have physician in Jesus Christ. We have already attained that. Let's live by that standard. So putting on the Lord Jesus Christ says, I want him. I don't want to live like him and do things that emulate him. So instead of deceiving and lying, we speak the truth in gracious ways. Instead of anger, we're reconcilers. Instead of stealing, we work and we give. Instead of using words to harm and destroy, we speak to encourage and edify. Instead of pursuing immorality and impurity, we love our wives and love our husbands. 
in a way that Christ does. Instead of complaining about others, we patiently forgive them. Brothers and sisters, sin will always entice us when we have not intentionally savored Christ. Sin will always entice us when we haven't made Christ our pursuit and Christ our goal. It is not enough to simply say, I'm going to stop my pet sin X. Just focusing on that may actually end up enticing you to do it still more. You need a righteous replacement. And the only righteous replacement that will satisfy you is Jesus Christ. Are you savoring Him? Are you delighting in Him? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Find your satisfaction in Him. And you will find the pleasures of this earth slipping away. It's time to get in on the fight of faith and fighting against sin by fighting for Christ. How do we summarize this? Very simply, don't do something. Don't do something ungodly. Put off the sinful inclinations and desires and activities of your life. You're no longer identified with Adam. You're not bound by sin, brothers and sisters. You're not obligated to sin. You can stop. So develop a warrior-like mentality against sin and aggressively work to stop. Secondly, do something godly. Put on godly inclinations and godly desires and activities of a Christ-satisfied life. Replace the sinful inclinations with corresponding righteous replacements. And enjoy everything that you have in life as an expression of your satisfaction in Christ. Do something godly. And think something Christ-like. It's not in these verses, but we know it's in the background because it's at the beginning of verse 12. In order to be sanctified, you must renew your mind. You must think a new way. And you renew your mind by thinking a new Christ-honoring way. You can't fight against sin and you can't savor Christ by thinking the way the world thinks. That kind of seems self-evident, doesn't it? But pragmatically, the way we function... It's really not self-evident to us because we still keep exposing ourselves to the way the world thinks and the way the world acts. And then we wonder, well, why, why am I still struggling with this sin? It's because I haven't thought in a new way. It's a fight. Remember what Roosevelt said? I found it interesting that he used church language in that speech. 
I wish, he says, to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of strenuous life, the life of toil, effort, the labor of, the, of labor and strife, to preach the highest form of success, which comes not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil. It's a battle. You didn't ask for it, but you're in a war. And the question is, are you fighting? And how are you fighting? And we fight by putting on Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh, and thinking in corresponding ways. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder. We've been in this text longer than we anticipated, but Perhaps it's simply because we need to be reminded so much of the necessity of pursuing sanctification and godliness. It doesn't come easily. It doesn't come naturally. It only comes supernaturally by the Spirit of God as He, through His Word, makes us to look like the Christ of the Word. And we are reminded even this morning, Father, of the ability to do this not based on what we are and what we do, but we are able to do this because of what Christ is and what He has done. Our labors are successful not because of what we have done, but our labors are successful because of what Christ has made us to be and to do. And so it is fitting to come to this table of communion and be reminded of Christ, our Lord, Christ, our Jesus, Christ, our Messiah, God, eternal King. For it is He that has made us to be justified, declared right before you, and He is the one who sanctifies us. Might we find joy and satisfaction in Him as we come to this table. We pray in His name. Amen.